Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. Our guest uh, for this episode, episode 19, is Keir Milburn, who is a lecturer in political economy and organization at the University of Leicester, and also the author of a brilliant new book, uh, which is what we're going to be talking about today, Generation Left. Joining me also um, on the line is Chairman Moe's Magic Contradiction, that's Jim Calder and Charlie Umland from Columbus, Ohio. We've had them on the show before. You may remember uh, when we did our episode on Slavoj Žižek and Jordan Peterson debating in Toronto. Kier, welcome to the show. First of all, before we get started, uh, just can you uh, say a little bit about who you are and uh, maybe how people can follow you online? Yeah, um, so I'm I'm a, I'm a lecturer. I'm an academic by by trade, but I'm also like a long term political activist. Uh, and you know, the book is perhaps it's got it's got its roots more in the latter than the former. Oh, mm-hmm. We'll decide that later. Uh, I'm on. Um, Twitter at, at Kier Milburn, K-E-I-R-M-I-L-B-U-R-N. And I'm also a co-host of uh, of a podcast myself, ACFM, which is out on um, Navara Media. Yeah. So if you put ACFM Navara into uh, Google, you'll, you'll come across that. I think we're going to talk about some of that later on. We are. We are. And a quick tip, tip uh, for listeners there, if, um, if you want to get the groovy music that goes along with that show, um, you've got to tune in on uh what is it called soundcloud uh and uh that is a streaming feed so you get the version of the show with the music in it um i learned that late in the day and uh it was a great discovery <laughs> to to find out the music was in there good, so so Kier, welcome to the show thanks for joining us there's a lot going on in this book but overall though it seems that your your main argument is that it's time to push back on the notion that millennials zoomers um young folks today um, are the bunch of entitled snowflakes that they're so often represented to be. So perhaps we can just start there. Where does that idea come from um, that young people today have, uh, you know, some problems that they need to deal with? You know, they need to be having a, a bit of a struggle session and figure out what's going on there. Yeah, I'm, I don't think that is my my basic argument. But <laughs> It's a good point to start, right? Because yeah. you can sort of get into quite a, quite a bit of this sort of like faux conflict at, at first. Yeah. And so, yeah, I talk about this sort of generation snowflake sort of narrative, which is probably the dominant narrative about millennials. It certainly is in the UK. I'm not sure in the U- US. I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty prominent in the US as well. Yeah, it's 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 uh, everywhere, kind of in everything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting. There's 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 different dimensions to this generation snowflake. So some of it is like you know, young people are like narcissistic, blah blah blah. Yeah. blah. Uh, but the sort of core of it is. You know, that basically young people are like over entitled. They won't, you know, they're voting left because they don't, they can't face up to the harsh realities of life, something mm-hmm. like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the classic is probably, you know, they, yeah, you can't afford to buy a house. That's because you're eating so much avocado toast, you know, if you learn to <laughs> save, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there's different dimensions to, like, you know, basically that narrative is false, but it does touch down on reality in places. Do you know what I mean? Well, they all have to, to some degree. Um, and so one of the, one of the things, one of the ways you could approach that is to think about, well, okay, there, so are young people narcissistic? Well, you know, well, there, there are probably reasons why they, young people, perhaps all of us actually, but young people might come over as narcissistic. So there's this, um, there's this great book by Malcolm Harris called Kids These Days. Have you come across that book? I have not. 
I haven't read it. No. You should look it up. Um, basically, he just goes, he's, a, he's addressing this sort of argument, right? As saying, well, look, what are the myths of generation, of generation snowflake? What are, the, what are the myths about millennials? And then he sort of looks at, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of lives that, are be, that, that neoliberalism ensnares young people in, right? This sort of like you, uh, you, the most examined, you know, uh, school generations in history, you know, you know, you get into work, it's constant audit. Do you know what I mean? Um, you, you, we get, we're, we're, we're ensnared in these social media algorithms, which demand that you, you construct a certain narrative about yourself. A certain self-promoted narrative about yourself. Hey, no wonder young people come off as narcissistic. Right, yeah, do you know yeah. what I mean? So that's, that's, that's one way you can get into that. But that, and you know, that does touch down onto reality <laughs> in some sort of way. But like the core of that argument is basically uh, around economics, isn't it? Basically, it's like, you know, oh, look, we recognize that young people, you know, that, 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 that house, you know, the level of, of, of house buying amongst the young or the under 30s or something is, is falling through the floor. Uh, so what's the reason for that? Well, you know, the reason is, you know, you, you, you're you not responsible or something. And, and that is just not true. And like, that's not just not untrue. It's just demonstrably not untrue. And it's been demonstrated over and over and over again. There was a study recently in the UK, which which sort of looked at um, um, how, how people under 30 spend their money in the UK and how compared it to previous generations. And, you know, it, 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 all the stats are there that, you know, they, they're, they're, they have much reduced uh, income in, in sort of real terms with just through inflation. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're spending on non-housing non um, consumption is much smaller. And out of that, they're spending on luxuries as apart from uh, essential goods is much, much smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, so the whole avocado toast thing, it's just demonstrably untrue. Yeah, if anything, they're not having so, enough avocado toast. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> fully, fully automated avocado luxury. That's what we're, that's <laughs> what we demand. For. Yes. <laughs> then we can. T- so like, yeah. No, but just if, if we're, if, it, if it's not true, what's it doing? <laughs> what's it doing there? And basically, I'm at, my, my basic argument would be something like, you know, it's like a comforting morality tale for older, for an older generation who, acting like a sort of alibi basically so that you don't have to think about your position in a system in which Mm -hmm. you're doing relatively well and younger people are doing a lot lot worse right doesn't it kind Uh, of also uh uh put pressure on young people to feel ashamed of themselves for enjoying their lives or or just to work harder get that second job drive for uber like the reason If you want to get ahead in this world, you have to do what we did, the older generation, and and yeah. make those sacrifices. But in reality, uh, you know, for millennials, the sacrifices are much greater than their parents were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it does do some sort of ideological work on young people. You know, basically chipping away at their their uh, you know expectations really about what a good life is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because we're living in a, in a time in which, you know, those, uh, you know, of declining living standards, basically. It's certainly declining incomes, declining prospects. There was some research done, I, I quote, quote it in the book, uh, um, in which in the UK, I think it's in the US as well, actually, millennials will be the first generation to have a lower lifetime income, uh, lower lifetime earnings than the, their parents' generation basically yeah like that the first the first generation in, in like hundreds and hundreds of years you know, something epochal about that you know what i mean oh, yeah. so in that sort of circumstances 
you know, you want young people, if you want things to stay the same, you want young people's expectations to be diminishing, 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 <laughs> and, and not to be, uh, you know, not to have these fantasies about fully automated avocado luxury. Mm-hmm. Well, but you're absolutely right. I mean, at the same time, we're seeing all these indicators, like we're not going to have as much money as our parents. We're not going to have the same living standards as our parents. And on the other hand, we're somehow entitled like it is. It's, mm. it's sort of, it's, it's contradictory on its face, but yet it's so per, uh, like pervasive. I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to get annoyed at <laughs> boomers, but that, uh, and, and like in the book, I'm sort of, I, I'm trying not to play a bit, a, a generational blame game. Right. right. But that is the thing that really does wind me up. <laughs> you know, people, it's this, it's this, no, go on, go on. Go on. People are, are, uh, are justifiably uh, mad at boomers. I think, you know, not to, not to, again, it's not about blame really, but it's like, I get pretty mad about boomers like a lot, (laughs) Um, especially when they're online. But, but, you know, also it's interesting because the, the story of, uh, you know, capitalist success is about growth and, you know, you have this generation where, where growth isn't actually increasing the, the quality of their lives or, uh, and even demonstrably, they have less. So, yeah. and so, like, what does that say about the limits of of uh, just assuming that we can keep growing? If you know we're already doing austerity, we're barely growing economically now. How is this? How even if? Well, the economy is growing, right? Just not. not, not That's a, what I mean. Not for us. Yeah, but but. Yeah, not enough for, not enough for it to you know, get to, to register as growth for most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if you take the UK since two thousand and eight, I mean, growth has been pretty, pretty bad actually. Right, that's kind of what <laughs> I'm saying. There has been growth. Yeah, yeah, there has been growth, but like um, living standards have not raised. Like they've been falling. Uh, and so there's this, and Paul Mason is a um, journalist and writer in the UK. Right. He's got this great story of meeting somebody in the north of England. Uh, 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 and saying, look, well, you know, GDP has gone up. And this woman says, yeah, that's your GDP. Right. Yeah. As in like, yeah, what's that got to do with me? That has no effect on me. It doesn't, you, you may think GDP is going up, but that doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm poorer than I was 10 years ago. Yeah, that, the, that's what counts. Do you know what I mean? There's that great, it's an interesting one. Now, oh, there, I was just going to say, there's that great that. meme of um, the, the guy saying like, uh, you know, Trump's created, uh, you know, whatever, 500,000 new jobs or something. And, He's telling that to like the cashier and the cashier's like, yeah, I have three of them and I still can't pay my yeah, rent. I <laughs> no, I was just going to go back to that. I mean, it's an interesting one if, you know, because we are living in a period in which economic growth is a, is a, is a, is a problem in some ways, right? We've got the whole climate crisis thing to, to think about. Right. Uh, you know, what, what, what effect does that have on when growth does not result in an increase in living standards, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What, what effect does that have in setting you up for arguments around what does, what does growth mean? Because ultimately, we do need to have a revaluation of, of what wealth means, yes. right? Yeah, Absolutely. we're away from GDP. We're, we're, right? we're, at the, we're at the sort of the end of the plank when it comes to that is, what, is kind of what it seems like. <laughs> right at the end, yeah. And, and is, that, is that something like kind of getting back to the book and the, the idea of generations – do you yeah. think that is something um, in your research that you've seen is different from generations? Because I do feel in certain ways, like my generation, like what I think about wealth compared to what my mom thinks about wealth, um, it, there does seem to be a generation gap. 
And what I think, and what I guess what I'm saying is, is I think certain younger people are sort of um, reevaluating what that means. Have you have you come across things like that? Well, the way I've been thinking about it is one of the things I've been trying to think about is um, like what's animating the young left. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in particular, what's the what's the conception of freedom that's animating the young mm-hmm. left? And one of the ways you can do that is to look at you know the sorts of demands that are being raised. You know, in the UK and in the US as well, you know, stuff around universal basic income. In the the Labour Party this week just re- released a report around the feasibility of a four day working week, so a reduction of the working week to four days. Hmm. Like you know, six years ago, that is that would have been absolute fantasy stuff. Yeah. And now you know, the, the, a party that might well be the the next government uh, of the UK ha- has you know got one of the top economists to try and think through the feasibility of that. <laughs> right. You know. Uh, so there's something going on and like yeah. there's something going on and, and it, I think it's around a conception of freedom which uh, which basically has started to analyze work as a restriction on freedom right mm-hmm. right which is not the way it's not which is not the neoliberal way right no not work at all is, is no. the root to freedom right? it's a much much more of a late late 60s way yeah I think so in so in some sorts of ways yeah but perhaps detached from from um or, or with a more critical uh, angle on the sort of like white heat of technology, um, faith in faith in progress, which was around in the sort of like fifties, etc. Yeah, you know, now, now you've got you've, you've got to align that sort of freedom with this sort of like um, political imaginary, sort of dominated by by climate change. Do you know, what I mean? it's right. all sort of doom laden. The the, the the faith that like we're, we're going to win. That communism will win, you know. That's an ironic statement these days. I don't think it used to be. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. Um, that that <laughs> idea that like you know technology and the, the the forces of history would inevitably lead us into somewhere better. I think we were separated from that. So well, you know, yeah. on the one hand, it feels like we're accelerating, but at the same time, it feels like, it, it, as far as that sort of uh, larger narrative goes, it feels like again, like we're at the end of the plank. We can't, like, we can't accelerate any further. But yet we still seem to. As far as communism will win, it's like obviously something has to give somewhere for uh, for communism to get a shot. I might actually jump in there with a question, if if that's okay. Um, so on that point, it seems it puts on the table this question of like how even in this sort of late depressing stage, capitalism still gets us to act as if we are, you know, as if this is inevitable, right? As if there's not really another alternative. Mm. Um, you've got a lot of, you know, in the book, a lot of interesting theorists uh, that you sort of bring in to, to bear on this question. Um, and reading that part of the book, I have to admit, I was reminded of Adam Curtis's documentary on hypernormalization because it seems that a very similar thing was being put forward there about the end of the Soviet Union, that um, everyone knew it was kind of on the way out, but the ideology required that they all sort of at least pay fealty rhetorically to the to the idea of of it continuing um yeah. can i just pass it over to you then and, and maybe you could just take us through that sort of fascinating kind of aspect what what what, what do you mean i mean mark fisher talks about this as like market stalinism <laughs> right <laughs> right you know basically this this huge performance for the big other as, as, as he as he says that you know basically nobody you're going through all of these audits and like nobody cares about the results of those audits. It's all about the discipline and effect it has on you, basically. Uh, especially in the university, right? University professors in the UK, especially, yeah, seem yeah, to have yeah. to do a lot yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I mean, perhaps one way into this, right? It would be to jump back a little bit and think about um, about uh, neoliberalism, right? Because yes, um, yeah, because like when when I'm when I'm thinking about basically my my angle on neoliberalism is um, you know. Uh, how to get out of it. Right? <laughs> so the, the primary thing I'm interested in is like the effect, you know, the, the, the sort of ways in which it decomposed working class power, basically, right? How it decomposed working class power and then how it, it, it shapes and influences us as we struggle to escape from it. Do you know what I mean? And so when, when I think about that, I think about the, the, the sort of key dynamics of neoliberalism are probably like financialization and, and governmentality. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so like financialization, we could just like, but financialization is just sort of like, you know, the dominance of like financial instruments in your everyday life, in the, in the institutions you relate to primarily like debt relations, right? Mm-hmm. But perhaps on the other side of debt relations is like asset ownership, you know, property owning democracy. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. And, and then like governmentality is, it, it just means, you know, the centrality of like of reforming institutions in the neoliberal project, right? So you, you basically, you, you change the way institutions are governed in order to change the mentality of the people who are interacting with those institutions, right? So that gets us at this market Stalinism thing is <laughs> that basically, you know, what, 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 what takes place, especially in sort of like the high, high point of neoliberalism, sort of 1990s through to the early noughties or whatever, yeah. mm. sort of like modernist moment of neoliberalism where it was as if it was going to address and solve the yeah, world's problems. Yeah, when it problems. had the most humanist face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, what, what, one of the things that happens in that is, you know, yeah, so the universities are really an obvious example in the UK. It's like one of the ones which has been hit, hit quite hard of it. But like lots of public, institu- uh, public um, sector institutions and in yeah. fact the way work is managed, etc. you know, what you get is management reformed around sort of audits, audit culture or, or uh, audits sort of stand in for markets, right? So you introduce markets where you can and then you introduce pseudo-market mechanisms where you can't, right? And those involve sort of like measuring things, uh, you know, setting targets, auditing these targets, etc. So even if and you sort of setting, I'm sorry. Go, go on. So even if it can't be privatized, you still uh, sort of uh, re- reorient it so it follows market logic. Yeah, I mean, there's this white paper that that came out around just just around the time of Tony Blair, which is you know, which sets out the logic of of like how do you reform institutions, and it says like. Create a market where you can. When you can't, where you can't create a market, you create pseudo market structures to try to change behavior so you can introduce a market later on. Something like that. You know, it's, it's just this direction of travel. And the direction of travel is they want to reform the way our mentalities, right? Reform the yes. way institutions are governed yeah. to reform our mentalities or our subjectivities, however you want to yeah, put our, it. Our and the way lives. it happens is like, don't don't worry. Uh, uh, here, listeners to this show will be no stranger to the word subjectivity being used. <laughs> Phew! Still tuned in Phew! in episode nineteen. <laughs> they, they, don't worry, they've had a lot of subjectivity over the last year or two. <laughs> good, 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 good. Yeah, and so so that's 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 the sort of market Stalinism is that like you know you're caught in this that, that neoliberalism has the, has the promise to, to to free us to free us from bureaucracy, <laughs> free us from red tape. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Free us from these overbearing states. That's not how we live it. You know, we live in a very, very, you know, we, we live the reality. And the reality is, you know, like, like you know, co- constant measure. No one reading, nobody really concerned with what comes out of these constant measures. Nobody reading the results of the audit. You know, the, the purpose is not for the production of that data. It's for the, the effect of that production of that data has on the person producing it. Do you know what I mean? 
And yeah. Fisher was so great about that. Um, the capitalist realism, I think he did, he did such a good job of just sort of very, even succinctly, just putting that out, that that's such a sort of lie about uh, neoliberalism, that it's like, uh, and you kind of don't have the Soviet Union in people's minds as much to be like, oh, yeah, this really bureaucratic place, like we have to work out, like now it's like, wait, we're really bureaucratic all the time. Yeah. And and I think that's, he did such a good job of that. I th- I think that's just so true. And I think it's something people kind of have to realize in their everyday lives. But at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, we still sort of have that weird thing clinking around our head. Like, yeah, this is freedom. Capitalism is the markets, uh, you know, get rid of bureaucracy and all this stuff. Like it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's really weird. Yeah. I mean, it, it, Mark in that book, um, like he, he, it's like a, he zeroes in on the myths of neoliberalism. <laughs> One of which is it's yeah. about freedom, and in fact, no, it's about you know absolute unfreedom tied up mm-hmm. in uh, bureaucracy. And the other one is, you know, neoliberalism will unleash our creativity. He says, yeah, yeah, have a look at <laughs> culture. You know what I mean? That's pretty conservative. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We're li- yeah. we're literally out of ideas at this point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So maybe that's a good um, point for us to jump into some of the developments since the financial crisis and, of course, the impact of the financial crisis itself as as an event. Mm. Um, it uh, is clear, I think, from your text that you're preoccupied with the depression, the insomnia, the, the mental distress that uh, capitalism today is, is causing us as the ship is sort of slowly sinking, but we don't have any yet plan to move to life rafts. Um, so so what is, uh, I think, the, the, the next question is, how have we responded to 2008? Mm. Uh, obviously, there was Occupy. Obviously, there were ways in which you could sort of trace the, the, the vernacular of neoliberalism showing up even in the midst of the Occupy moment. Um, so to what extent is this sort of therapeutic uh, tendency that we sort of need t- today to uh, being obscured by sort of this, this, this late or zombie, uh, mm. capitalist moment. Yeah. I mean, in the book, I sort of talk about it as a zombie, <laughs> zombie neoliberalism in a sort of post, uh, post 2008, um, world. And yeah, so, so we can relate that to this, you know, this whole governmentality, this subjectivities, mm-hmm. you know, the subjectivities we're supposed to, we're supposed to adopt is or the, or the model of freedom then, right? The model of freedom of neoliberalism is like the freedom of the entrepreneur. And so we're supposed to be, we're supposed to take on that, that model of freedom and be entrepreneurs of ourselves. Right. Right. So like the, the model of freedom is the entrepreneur's ability to uh, mon- manage his investments without any interference from the outside. Right. And so that, you know, through the sort of metaphor of human capital, we take that uh, as this sort of, you know, the model for which we should, we should, um, um, conceive of our lives, you know, so we invest in ourselves. We invest in ourselves by going to the gym, et cetera. Invest time. And- that's actually Milton Friedman, isn't it? Didn't, didn't he like explicitly say that? That was part of the way he reframed it's, um, ga- capitalism. Well, Gary Becker, um, who is like uh, one of Friedman's students in the Chicago school comes up with a human metaphor, uh, human capital metaphor, but like he's, okay. t- he's, he's taking it from, from Friedman. And like, um, so, so a lot of this sort of governmentality stuff, well, I came at it because, um, Foucault reads that stuff and then, you know, the, that releases it as a series of, well, he does a series of lectures in, in the late 70s, 79 mm-hmm. or something. They get released in the early 2000s <laughs> uh, in English. Um, uh, 
Yeah, but so, so, Foucault on neoliberalism. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, First there's lots of other people who write who are right around this sort of idea of, of governmentality as well. But like, I, th- I just find it useful because because post two thousand and eight, we can sort of see the breakdown of those subjectivities, right? Do you know what I mean? That they, yeah. a lot of those subjectivities are going into crisis, and, and you can sort of understand it because, like, uh, you know, they're about invest. You, you, I'm going to invest in myself in order to get a return on my investment. Right? I'm going to spend time on Twitter, and I'll get a return on that investment by increased followers. Once again, people at Kia Milburn. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, good. And, and so, like you know, we, we can look at like um, the reforms of, of higher education in the UK. Introduced student fees, really high student fees, etc. Like you know, that costs the government more money. That's not about saving money, right? That's mm-hmm. about no, it's about influencing the way that students think about education, and it's worked, right? Because the, students choose different degrees now than they did before the introduction of fees. It's about training you. You know, change yeah. to think of education as an investment from which you will get a return on that education. Well, look, there's a problem. Since 2008, returns on the investment in education have tanked. They've gone through the floor, right? And you can right. see that, like, that sort of makes sense in a time in which it's possible to believe that you are going to get a return in that investment. But when all when you look around and all you see is like, you know, um, um, you're managing your own. P- Poverty. This is what um, Lazzarato says. You mm-hmm. know, he says there's been a there's been a sort of subjective Maurizio Lazzarato, and he's got a couple, few books about debt. Indebted man. He's got an interesting yeah. book. He says, look, you know, that this is the problem is that we've been trained in these subjectivities. All the institutions which train us in those subjectivities are still there training us, right? So we're still getting that subjective right. training. So we pop out the other side of these institutions, well, <laughs> but what we were promised is not being delivered. Right, so the returns on investment aren't being delivered. So what you're left with, you're just left with the entrepreneurial management of your own poverty. Right, you're the one who has to take care, you know, go out and get two jobs and like ride a bike for Deliveroo and you know follow up on, you know, chase these six jobs, etc. That is not an attractive, uh, an attractive future. So that collapse in subjectivity, in neoliberal subjectivities, or the collapse or the crisis in in those neoliberal subjectivities. Now, they create this raw material, I think, from which a, gener- a, a left political generation can be formed. Uh, I mean, isn't there a contradiction in the entrepreneurial, the self, when it comes to college anyway? Like, aren't entrepreneurs supposed to, um, you know, sort of buck the system and go their own way, find that, that hidden, that hidden uh, customer base or whatever? Yeah. And, uh, can, I, and, can I introduce so you like, to so like, um, S.A. Mills? <laughs> Okay. They are. They're entre- so, entrepreneurial uh, students. So they're like all go, buying like essays. Going to college, going through this. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. They're, they're all buying essays. You know, I mean, that's the entrepreneurial sp- spirit. Is that you buy essays that somebody else has written, etc. You know, it's a, a huge epidemic. <laughs> and then you try to resell them on Facebook. Here we <laughs> yeah, go. Yeah. yeah. No, but I, the, the, okay. The metaphor doesn't. Uh, it's, it's a really. Sh- it's, the metaphor doesn't translate to higher education because what are students? Right. Are they the producers? Are they the customers? Who knows? I mean, you know, it doesn't right. quite mm-hmm. work. But that, that doesn't matter. They definitely don't seem like entrepreneurs. Sorry, say that again? They definitely don't seem to behave like entrepreneurs. Yeah, do. no, no. Yeah, but but that's the problem. So the, the, the what's... Because the, the, the that model of freedom, the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial model of freedom, has got some attractive things about it. You know, it's all about taking initiative, you know, uh, that, those sorts of things. I, I really, really don't find that in my students, right? But it's not surprising because, <laughs> right. you know, that, it, I think that's one of the critiques uh, of neoliberalism as like, 
you know, it is not something that creates this huge creativity. It's not something that creates innovation. It's not something that creates entrepreneurial behavior in that fashion, because what you need for any of those is some level of material security, right? Yeah. If you want to be, if you want to be an entrepreneur, right, you've got to be born rich because you've got to be, you've got to have enough money to be able to risk it without, you know, without risking destitution, Right, which is, mm-hmm. you know, that's just basically, if you want to look at the socioeconomic mo- model of entrepreneurs, that's what they are. They're all from a particular class. Do you know what I mean? Right. Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the real material reality of it. Yeah. But they start in their garages. <laughs> yeah. So, the, <laughs> yeah, so the question is. Bloody big garage yeah. with two Rolls Royces in it. <laughs> yeah, right. So the real question is if neoliberalism, if the, this neoliberal ideology can't get us to be entrepreneurs in college and can't get us to be entrepreneurs um, on social media, uh, successfully, what are, what's the next thing they're going to try to do to, uh, to be this, this, uh, locus of, uh, entrepreneurial training? Um, well, I think, I mean, I'll go back to this, this sort of, um, this concept of the zombie, zombie neoliberalism is, um, I don't think there is a next, right? I don't think there is a next idea. Like, so, so my, the idea of a, of a zombie for me is, is like, but there's like a zombie is something which can't change direction. Like it can't, it can't deal with the future. The zombie hasn't got a future. It, it behaves on habit and just keeps on doing the habitual move that it's been, you know, it used to. You know, in in Dawn of the Dead, for instance, <laughs> the classic. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know the the shoppers, the, the zombie shoppers go back because that's the habit that they had, etc. But you can't. The zombies are not human beings because they can't recognize the future and adjust. To changes that come along, and I think there's neoliberalism is in that situation now, right? and you know, and it's morphed into zombie conservatism, which basically really has renounced the future. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, that, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, there's really nowhere else to go, right? Because you know, we, we think of ourselves as uh, you know the entrepreneurial spirit, the investing, and sort of yourself or your life, and you know, where maybe uh, the boomer generation, you know, their big investment was their home. Mm which is, um, you know, in one way a financial asset, but that's also a very sort of intimate aspect where you live. But if you take it even further, now you're investing in, in sorry to back up, but you know, when, when the housing market collapses and stuff, and all of a sudden you're about to lose your home or things like that, that's very traumatic. Mm-hmm. But maybe for the next generation, you know, our big investment is ourselves. So when things, when things go out, you can't even sell yourself. Like you can sell your home. You're just stuck with it. So (laughs) you're sort of, if, if that's what you're investing in, that's sort of the last resort. It's like, we're not going to give you any actual capital to invest in. It's just going to be you, you, you. So when that investment falls south, what are you left with? Mm. And it's basically nothing, a failed investment that is also your own self and subjectivity. I mean, that's, that's pretty, I can't imagine how much farther we could go than that. Yeah, but I think that gets us back to Nick's question about the, the sort of psychological effects of, of of this failure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, because yeah, well, I thought that the stuff you with uh, I can't remember the first name, but the what was Silva? Jennifer Studies? Silva. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I thought that was that was really interesting. Um, and I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but that idea that you know, in the absence of something else. Um, something else to actually sort of succeed at. Um, there's this creation of kind of like a mental health narrative or something to mm-hmm. overcome personally that just like we, we keep kind of creating things to overcome or maybe you could, you could explain that. Narratives of resilience and things like this. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I always think of it as like the Oprah Winfrey story. <laughs> that's what right. that's op- Oprah's Oprah's stick is. Um, you know, overcoming these overcoming these uh, in, initial hardships in order to become a full human being. Okay, and Oprah right. Winfrey's you know to become a multi billionaire, but like most people are not. Right. Most people are going to lose in that. I mean, that, that is the problem with like um, with with markets, you know, or, or competitive systems. Is that um, you know, you, you, you're trained to measure yourself against this sort of, in a, you know, you're trying to see yourself as, 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 as a, you know, a rational utility maximizing individual who's, who's in competition with everybody else and everybody else is seen as a problem, right? To overcome, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but the problem with that is that, um, you know, uh, most people are going to lose. And since 2008, <laughs> that has really, really accelerated. So that is mm-hmm. a subjective problem that you have to, you have to face. You know what I mean? Uh, if you if you buy into this, and pe- you know people obviously hold contradictory ideas, and you know they, they don't fully work out their, their ideological positions, right? But you know if you go along with the idea that you know you should measure yourself on a, a you know uh, on a on a on a, a ladder of success, etc., and you're at the bottom of that and you're slipping down, well, you need to. There's all sorts of ways in which you can come to terms with that. You know, in some ways that that explains sort of. Um, the non-wealthy turn to the right. Do you know what I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, um, oh, look, I would have succeeded, uh, but these lot, these Mexicans, these Eastern Europeans, they're getting extra help. They're getting a foot on a ladder. That's why. So it's not fair. If it was fair, I would have succeeded, basically. Uh, that's one of the ways you can you can deal with it. But the other way is this sort of therapeutic narrative, which is, yeah, you, you sort of reduce the aim of saying, look, I had loads of hardships and I've done pretty well because I've overcome those hardships. Do you know what I mean? There's, there, mm-hmm. it's, it's a complicated one because I'm, I'm relatively sympathetic. To that. You know, it's almost a first oh, stage yeah. to. Well, it makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. It totally makes sense. But like, the problem is, is that like one of the other things that we're that we're trained, the uh, one of the other bits of our subjectivity we're trained to to take on is that we are we're individuals, and basically, mm-hmm. it, so you know, Wendy Brown talks about this as responsabilization. It's like you know, whatever problems you have. You know, you have to accept that you have got an individual failing, which has caused those problems. Do you know, it's, mm-hmm. this, it's the removal of the idea of structural causes, right? It's it's a removal right. of it's, it's the removal of of the political, right? Everything is just personal, right? Uh, well, maybe 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 we can uh, sort of set it up this way. So, um, so okay, you know, we, we're living in this uh, zombie capitalist moment where the ship can't turn around. Uh, despite the fact that it obviously needs some kind of correction in terms of its course. Um, and we are all either locked into kind of Tea Party-esque doubling down on conservative ideology and policing uh, the, the margins of our society, migrants, etc., scorning them, scolding them uh, for not conforming more to ideal types, or we're busy engaged in our entrepreneurial lives, locking ourselves into these sorts of therapeutic modalities uh, you know, taking it onto the yoga mat, so to speak, and, um, you know, meditating our way out of the, the psychic trauma of it all. Uh, but nevertheless, Kier, you know, throughout the text, you, you focus again and again on the importance of certain kinds of events, certain kind of discontinuities that can come along that can generate openings, that can generate uh, the possibility uh, for especially young people um, to, to, and I, and I think it's, um, 
the, it's, it's, it's Mannheim, uh, the sociologist, I think that you're sort of turning to here, who refers to the possibility of fresh contact, you know, generations with new experiences where maybe old legacies of the Soviet Union and things like this are, are in the distant past. Um, the baggage associated with socialism, with communism seems to be a distant memory. And all of a sudden we have this potential for new engagements. We, we, we had a little bit of that. I think with Occupy, it did create some new cognitive awareness uh, of, of, of potentiality for us for a different political mode. Um, it obviously had its problems, but it seems that the interest in the left has not diminished at all. Um, in fact, today, arguably, um, with this sort of parliamentary turn, uh, we have a, a, a massive new sort of investment mm. in, 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 in the very idea of sort of entering the state. So can you sort of just talk us through a little bit about how you're seeing that turn? What explains this um, enthusiasm, um, even in the face of this zombie model? You know, because obviously the zombie model isn't, isn't succeeding um, in, in, in keeping us within its um, cognitive, preferred cognitive framework. Yeah, well, there's a few things in there. We should unpick them a bit because sure. the first one is relates to my sort of concept of what a generation is. Yes, uh, and I and I do. I use Mannheim, um, and and I use him because he's he's he 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 rejects this idea that we have a, just a generation every twenty years. You know, so we have the boomers, then we have the Gen Xers, then the millennials, etc. And I want to do away with that. And he, he sort of says you can have a generation. You know, you might not have a political generation. He says for a hundred years, or you may have you may have two in a decade because. You know, what causes them is, is, is a really rapid, uh, change in the, in, uh, oh no, I, I put that wrong. <laughs> a speed up in the, in the rate of change, basically, something mm-hmm. like that, we'd say. Uh, and I sort of read him across, you know, the critical theory around the idea of the event, basically. And so my, my, my sort of glossing of the event is, you know, it's, it's, it's a moment in which, uh, which significantly alters this sort of the, the, the sense of what is socially and politically possible at a particular moment it sort of alters the, the, the some common sense understanding of the world, if you will. Um, and so that helps me think about, and so the next part of his, the, there's sort of like two stages to Mannheim's idea of, of what a generation is. The first one is that, you know, you have these, what I would say, events, which cause a sort of rupture, basically. Um, a rupture in like what seems socially and politically possible. And then the second part is that, you know, young people may have, the, the chance of a fresh contact with what's changed, right? And it's because he's got this other idea, which is that we tend to build up a sort of like a solidified worldview, yeah. like a sort of interpretive grid of the world made up of our own formative experiences. And as young people are younger, they've got less experiences. And so they've got a less solid sort of uh, worldview. So they, they find it easier to get fresh contact uh, with those ideas. Um, so like, you know, the, I use that to think, the reason I want to turn to that is because I think 2008 is like this significant moment in the development of this generational rift. Yeah. Uh, and, and so 2008, the financial crisis, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, basically that, 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 that creates a huge split, uh, between the generations. And wh- when I'm, when I'm thinking about generations, I, I'm thinking there's a generational rift around two different things. One of which is material interests, right? The material interests of different generations have like ruptured. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is By only material interest. Crisis, right? Yeah. 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 And how that's played out. So what's happened since the financial crisis okay. is, you know, you've had a huge sort of bailout of the financial sector, et cetera, which has had the effect of, of, of like massive inflation of assets, home, house prices and, and, and share prices primarily. And asset ownership is like massively divided generationally. 
Right? So that's one way in which you could think about that split of material interests. But like material interests are tied to how what you think is the future is going to be like, mm-hmm. right? what, what you think is possible, an attractive, a viable future. Right. It's in my interest to act in this way because this will be what the, this will be the result in the future. And so I think there's been a rupture in that second bit as well of like what seems like a viable and attractive future. Um, and so, you know, basically that's, that's the idea that, um, there's a model of, there's a model of, 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 of a life path in, in, in the neoliberalism, um, which is no longer available to young people, right? And so we could just gloss that as like this idea that, you know, there's no return on investment anymore. There's no path onto the housing ladder. There's no path towards increased consumption as you get older. Um, let alone or, the climate that, crisis that we're facing too. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Which totally, sort of yeah. looms bigger and bigger all the time over everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't cover that so much in the book, but it's one of the thing I've been thinking about a lot since. Because that I think that is also like the climate climate crisis is also sort of an event, but it's like a really. So really diffused it, event. It, yeah. it, it <laughs> operates differently in time somehow. It's like a, it's like yeah, an it event does, yeah. that works backwards at this point. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah That's no, interesting. Right. Like okay. Like a backwards yeah. mudslide. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's something. <laughs> some some sort of Benjamin's angel of history thing is happening here with the climate change. Yeah. But I think let, let me get back to my um my little narrative about the argument Absolutely. around generations. So this is my this is what how I'd say right. I've got a chapter on on two thousand and eight, the financial crisis, and the sort of subjective crisis that that has caused, which we just talked about a little bit. And I say like that that creates the, the sort of raw materials for a, for a left generation. But like you know that has to ha- that has to be articulated politically, basically. And so Mannheim says that what happens is that you, you some some events cause generational units, the sort of like I don't know the the grit around which a pearl. Uh, forms or whatever right <laughs> uh, and i say like like 2011 that 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 you know the whole occupy wave the 15m movement in spain you know which was a really big thing in the uk we had a big student movement in 2010 then we had a series of like um urban riots uh, at the right. end of 2011 and like out of that i mean the uk example is like the clearest example uh, there, like there is a a left a left generation formed of people who sort of like uh, shared the same experiences, shared the sort of very similar sort of outlook and, and basically quite a lot of them knew each other. That wasn't huge. In in Spain, that generation, that generational unit was very, very large. In the UK, it wasn't so large. Hmm. But hey, it, it turns out it was large enough to take over the Labour Party. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. And that's what happens is an electoral turn, you know, about 2014, 2015, depending how. It's harder to put a precise date on electoral turns because electoral processes are on different timescales mm-hmm. in different countries. Yeah. Um, but there's de- there definitely is, you know, you go from like 2011 where, you know, it's just, let's, let's get rid of them all, a complete rejection of representative politics to, you know, a definite turn towards representative politics. And, you know, partly because we reached the limits of that non-representative politics, you know, as it was performed at that time. And so, yeah, so that, you know, you, so the other bit of this gener- this generations and event argument is I, I make this other argument, which is left generations tend not to form around directly around events such as two thousand eight, because what happens in two thousand and eight is a is the collapse of possibility, right? Yeah. The, okay. the neoliberal model of the good life is no longer there, right? That can lead in all sorts of ways, and it can tend to lead in right wing ways. You know, it, it can breed resentment, whatever, rather than rather than a shift to the left. So you need a different form of event 
for a left generation to form. I call these moments of excess, right? Moments in which the the prevailing subjectivities you have are exceeded. You know, the the possibilities seem to open up in a, in in some sort of way, which I do think happened in two thousand and eleven. Even around Occupy, you know, you mm-hmm. have a mm-hmm. right. Did you see like possibility seems to open up? And and there's some way to kind of participate, right? As opposed to the financial mm-hmm. crisis, which we all sort of participate participate in, yeah. but not really. It's more something that's happening to us. Yeah, yeah. It feels more like a natural disaster, doesn't it? You know, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's as, though it, it's as though it's beyond human action. Of mm-hmm. course, it is only human action. But yeah, yeah, totally. You can see it of like, you know, passive events and active events. You could probably sort of put that sort of, sort of thing on it, I think. Yeah, so um, that's what I think. I think the... Uh, and you know, there, there's there's literature around this sort of these sort of moments. There's this really classic article from like I think it's 1972 called "Moments of Madness" by um, Aristide Zolberg. <laughs> it's a real classic. <laughs> it's a sort of classic post 68 thing. But he goes back and looks at. Um, he, he looks back. You know, he, uh, he starts in 1848, and then he gets the Paris Commune, and he does um, uh, you know, the, the the liberation of Paris. You know, and and it's all the, like collecting up testimonies of people who are in those moments. And it's all the same. It's like, you know, it, you feel as though anything is possible, is that people are saying all the time, you know. You just to, you feel as though anything is possible. Of course, everything isn't possible. And that's the problem. You have to relate those moments of expansion to then, you know, um, to the sort of very enclosed uh, uh, world of of actually existing possibility and, and actually existing politics. Do you know what I mean? I think that's what we're living out now. Like in the UK, it's a real battle to keep this, the... I don't know. I want to call it utopian dimension, but like to keep a bit of far sightedness going. Yeah. Because this, the huge pressure, you know, within the sort of Corbyn movement, the huge pressure to, to knuckle under it, you know, it's massive. Do you, do you uh, think uh, what, what you're saying made me, made me think of something is something Charlie and I talk about a lot. Um, you, know, you see arguments on the left. Um, it sometimes sort of reject like any reformism or something with the idea that. You know, if we elect Bernie Sanders, it's going to whatever, soften the edges on capitalism and then people are going to accept capitalism more. And then we're just going to like kind of, you know, stay, stay the course because we've made it a little more compassionate or something. Uh, That's what you see. People talk about maybe Elizabeth Warren also as well. Um, But, you know, when, when Charlie and I, we, we did a lot of stuff reading like the situationist movements things like that uh, in 68 and in, to us it seems like the fact that they were able to critique their critique of of daily living and everyday life and alienation things like that was actually because that in many ways they were much more sort of financially stable so it's like the reforms actually opened yeah. up people to um opened up space for people to criticize more and go further as opposed to, you know, the narrative that the reforms will just make everyone sort of happy and, and let things slide or something. That's yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I agree. Right. So, so the situation is international. The group that they're influenced by politically is a group called socialism or Barbary. I mean, obviously in French, which is Castoriadis is, um, yeah. Castoriadis is a group basically. Mm-hmm. Although Baudrillard was in there. He was mm. one of the militants in that at some point. And, and biographically, interestingly, my dad, my father was in a, a an English group who was sort of the English wing of socialism or Barbary really? <laughs> called Solidarity. Okay. Uh, and so my politicization was me being a little punk and <laughs> running around going anarchy in the UK <laughs> and him giving me a huge, huge load of pamphlets of that. Yeah, yeah, we'll read that then. <laughs> <laughs> 
But like, you know, so, so this, this group, Socialism of Barbara, you know, their, 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 they, their starting point was that, um, immiseration, Marx was wrong about immiseration, right? It was that the pro, you know, uh, the, 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 the problem of, uh, um, uh, that the idea that people would get, um, uh, poorer and poorer, that there would be poverty, mm-hmm. etc., is is not true. And in fact, we needed to rethink things. And that, you know, they said the new divide would be about order takers and order givers, etc. Like that is such a theory of that time. It's you could not propose that. Mm-hmm. Now. Yeah, you'd be laughed out. You'd be laughed out of the shop. Do you know what I mean? So I totally think you know you can just take you can directly take the Citrus International. Think about their political influence and say yes, you are absolutely right. It is a product of that of that time. And I, but I'm. Yeah, I'm quite attracted to that idea of, because <laughs> I've also been quite influenced by um, sort of autonomist idea, autonomous mm-hmm. Marxism, and up, comes out of like Italy in the what, 1950s to 70s, etc. And there's just no doubt that that was a, that was a, that was a, that was, you know, position of, you know, it's the result that you can come to those sorts of politics, at, you know, as a result of like 150 years of, of development of the workers' mm-hmm. movement, of gaining more and more, etc. And it's hard to, you know, you have to reassess those after a big period of defeat, which is what the last 40 years have been, you know, neoliberalism is the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, there's this theorist, um, uh, Kalecki as well, who writes this great article called The Problem of Full Employment. Have you ever come across this article? No. No, no but it sounds like it's, something we should read. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's stick it on the old reading list. I'm sure you've got a very small reading list. No, no. It's, <laughs> so his, his argument is like, um, that, that, like full employment is a real problem for capital because all the evidence shows that like, you know, as soon as you remove the link between work and destitution. So if you don't go to work, you're destitute. As soon as that is suspended, like what you get is workers demand more. Mm-hmm. They want more and more control over their lives. Right. Which is basically my reading of the struggles of the 1970s. They're, 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 they're partly made up of like those people who have had some sort of measure of security added to their lives, partly by the level of wages partly by, you know, social security are just demanding more and more and more than capital can offer. And that, so you get a profitability crisis in the 1970s. And so you're, you're faced with this, you know, you get to this position in which you have to then decide, I, not we, capital has to decide, <laughs> or, or no, society either goes beyond capitalism or you have a retrenchment back to a more uh, base form of capitalism, which I think is what neoliberalism is in its sort of, in its economic impulse in the 1970s. But it's an interesting it's an interesting view on like does social democracy need lead to retreat or does social democracy or can social democracy lead to advance? Exactly, that's exactly what you know. What that's the question I was trying to ask. I think it's an open question. Yeah, I think it's incredibly interesting and important. Yeah, it is an open question. Well, ultimately, I think if you talk about the seventies, it seems like it led to defeat in the in the Mm. final reading, or that or you know it set up that struggle, but the but. for whatever reason, uh, you know, capital, uh, won that fight and was able to mm. roll out neoliberalism, implement all these sort of reforms and reshape life all, all over the globe. Well, I, I actually have a related question and maybe we can, instead of trying to answer that, maybe look back at what happened before. Cause one of the interesting things about, um, reading your book and a question that I sort of started thinking about was, okay, so how did these people, and I know they're not necessarily the same actual person, but how do these people who were, let's say, demanding more autonomy over their workplace, who were sort of dissatisfied with the um, post-war compromise, how did they sort of transform into being the boomers of today who are like, 
you shouldn't eat toast or something. You know, you can't eat avocados. Like how, how they kind of, t- yeah. like, what was that process of them kind of turning, you know, with such radical ideas, how did they kind of turn into the man later on? Sure. Well, but look, you know, basically what, yeah, I think that is an interesting question because I, 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 I I'm, because part, part of, let's go back to Mark, Mark Fisher's, uh, um, uh, uh, ideas around um, acid communism, right? So, so that the the the, the, the podcast I'm involved in, ACFA, right? You know, it's like an it's like acid Corbynist radio. We sort of talk. Yeah, we're not quite sure if it meets the AC title, stands for acid, <laughs> yeah. acid Corbynist or acid communist. We, we can never quite. Decide. I like that it's both that. and neither. It's, it's good. <laughs> no, but like that 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 project is all about. Like, so you know, Mark didn't finish the book. He just wrote, you know, an, an introduction, a couple of chapters, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, the the starting point of that is is overcoming this idea of that neoliberalism was always going to come about out of the seventies and sixties and seventies. Right. Like, if you go back and look at history, no, that was a contingent thing, depending on how how politics went. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and and you know, there were lots of governments who were really do, were looking to, you know, really really much more radical uh, policies than they than than Corbyn or Sanders are suggesting now, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah, Mitterrand, yeah. etc. And in, in 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 Scandinavia, you know, they were they were looking at these mechanisms for moving beyond capitalism in a sort of um, more gradualist sort of sort of fashion. So one of the one of the things we can look at in that is that, like, yeah, actually, look, the baby boomers were a nascent left generation. Sixty eight mm-hmm. is definitely one of those moments of excess. Mm-hmm. Yes, right? and there was a generational unit formed. Um, who went out and tried to hegemonize the wider generation and then from that the rest of society, mm-hmm. you know, and they had a bloody good go at it, right? The 70s was the last time the left really had a good go. Uh, who knows how close it was and, you know, who, you know, but the fact is it was defeated. And if you look at how it was defeated, you know, in the first instance it's defeated, uh, yeah, but well, we would probably say militarily. Well, yes. mm-hmm. you know, Allende is definitely militarily, mm-hmm. but, you know, CIA. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, what they, they, yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. they killed all the Black Panther leaders, um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. like that's yeah, stuff that so, people just kind of take for granted, like, oh, well, well. but look, yeah, yeah, they killed Martin Luther King. Someone yeah. did, you know, like, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I think that part actually gets a yeah. little overlooked. Shot Fred Hampton. Yeah, Fred yeah. Hampton, especially. But, but like moving on a little bit on that, you know, so I'm, I'm seem to be talking biographically, but no, <laughs> I grew up it. in a, in a, in a sort of mining area in South Wales in the 1980s. And like, you know, so the big, big deciding battle, uh, in the 1980s in the UK was that there was a miners strike from 1984 to 1985, mm-hmm. the all out whole, whole of the state mobilized to defeat the miners, the whole of the working class and, you know, in all its complexity, um, supporting the, um, supporting the miners, you know, so basically people collecting tins, collecting food. There was a group called uh, Lesbian and Gay Support the Miners. Wow. There's a great film about it called Pride. Um, you know, it was a massive fight. And I remember being in, you know, walking in my town, there would be like 40, 50, 60 police fans waiting to go up into the mines and, Jesus. you know, beat the miners, you know. Um, so the, in the first instance, it was defeat the unions, defeat those those bastions of, of of working class power and defeat them militarily more or less right you militarize the police force etc the first thing margaret thatcher does is gives a huge pay increase to the to the to the police forces etc but like after that's done there's a shift of focus and what you know basically what you you could sort of say that like the baby boomers 
had their mouths stuffed with gold, basically. Mm. <laughs> By a, financialization. Uh, uh, well, that's that's actually what I was wondering, yeah. and, and that's kind of a sad story for going forward because that scares me. Like, uh, if if all it took was to take this super radical sixty eight generation and give them sort of push their pensions into the stock market and financialization, give them some houses, and then they were like. Okay, cool. Like, <laughs> but it's a zombie now. That doesn't seem like it's going to work again. Yeah, that that was a one time okay. deal. That, that that you don't get that again, right? Because because you know what happens is so in the UK it's like it's, it's you know financialization, the release of you know the, the deregulation of finance, etc., which does open up you know ability to lend more. But it's also the, the right to buy a council house was this big signature move in the nineteen eighties. So indeed, if yeah. you lived in social housing, and social housing was a, was a really huge part of. Of the housing market in the UK, you could buy it at like fifty percent discount. Wow! Right, you know that's that's a sort of huge giveaway, a huge giveaway of of like this this um, public infrastructure, which you can never do again. Yeah, but neoliberalism is all about these one-time moves in order to try to stave off this pro- this crisis of profitability. You know, yes. <laughs> so you don't think that could re- that couldn't repeat itself? We don't have the the economy kind of couldn't take it. They'd have to give everybody the house for free this time. Oh, if they do that, then I'm fine. Right, right, exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like, that's the, what I'm after. That's the wall we're up against. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, but like it, uh, this sort of plays into the generational analysis, right? Because like that—that that is the problem. Is that like wages in the UK have been sort of stagnant? Real wages, adjusted for inflation, have been sort of stagnant since the 1980s. The same in the US. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the US, probably in decline. Actually, so, you know, there's a sort of moderate decline in wages, and. Uh, Obviously, that's a problem for capitalism. Capitalism has to grow, right? Yeah. It has to go in a compound way. So you have to have more and more things bought. And so, you know, that you know, the, the increases in wealth that, that ordinary people come basically come through asset price inflation, primarily housing, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, and also people sort of um, using that, that wealth to purchase consumer goods, right? Which is a huge part in the early 2000s of people... Uh, of people remortgaging their houses and, and, you know, equity withdrawal, they call it, you know, it just took up a huge amount of consumption. And that's the problem is that like that was a one-time deal. It is not available to young people. Like you can't do that again. Well, the, you know what I mean? That's, even the people yeah, that once did it's that. it's sold off, it's sold off. Even the people that did mm. that got that equity by expanding their debt. But, but so, so I think that really, so that, that's one way in which you can, you can think about the, 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 the difference in material interests is that, so I make this argument that older people, or the wealthier proportion of older people, so in the UK, a quarter of, of over 65s don't own their own homes, so they're not involved in this. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're really in, they're really in this shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, but uh, like, you know, the interests of older people have been aligned to the interests of the financial sector to a large degree. So if the financial sector is doing well, they're doing well. And that is the complete opposite of the, of young people because the, in- the material interest of young people is on the level of wages and the level of social spending. And both of those have been utterly, utterly catastrophic since 2008, right? So it's not surprised that they that these, these have been separated with, and it leads you to like, well, how do you overcome that? You know, you, you how do you overcome that, that problem? With, from what, Which is a real, real, real tricky problem. Yeah. From within capitalism. I mean, like, like we've kind of been mm. saying throughout, it may not be, like, how will they? It doesn't seem possible. Well, that's, I think when, the way, the way I think, one of the best questions you ask in the book, and uh, I thought you did a really good job sort of, you know, explaining this left turn with the younger generations and why and stuff like that. But but in your book, you sort of leave this open of like, there's still a lot to do, right? There's still a lot to, to bridge this gap. Politically, there's a lot to do. Um, sort of within our everyday lives, there's a lot to do. 
Um, so I know we don't have like the ultimate solution here or anything, but do you have, uh, like what ideas do you have about, you know, the steps, steps of where things can go? Well, but yeah, in in the book, I sort of end on this. I tried to, I'm trying to think about a couple of things. One of which is that how do you bridge the generation gap? But it's also like, you know, in the post-war period, there has been a general trend for people to move, to become more conservative as they age, you know, and I think it's to do with the, with the, with the, the general tendency to take on more property as you age, basically. And I, I, yeah, I've got this bit in the book about sort of influenced by Corey Robin a little bit about, you know, um, uh, fear being the sort of like affect of conservatism, fear of dispossession of your property, et cetera. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, um, um, so, you know, one of the things is like, how do you stop this, this sort of ten- how do we stop today's young leftists turning into um, into uh, tomorrow's conservatives. Do you know what I mean? Um, and there's no way to guarantee that. But like one of the one of the things I said is that, you know, we've got to change the way we think about property. We've got to change the model of ownership around property. So I make this argument that our, our conception of, of adulthood is sort of based around the attributes of private property. Like mo- most obviously because families are, a bit, are sort of based around lines of inheritance, et cetera, but also, you know, the marker of becoming an adult is that you form a family of your own and you move into your own house, whatever, you know, you set your own sort of nuclear family, et cetera, which sort of relates to sort of private property. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, basically that, that is also a model of adulthood, which is broken because all of the markers of adulthood are not, they're either not available to young people or that they've been put off much further into life. Right. You know, the first time when you have your first baby 10 years later than the 1970s, same about marriage, et cetera. I'm not saying that that model of life was a good model. It wasn't available to everyone and it may not be completely attractive, but like basically that model is, that model is sort of broken. So we should re, we need to rethink about, I, I make this argument, we should reform the model of ownership around a different form of property, which is the commons, you know, common ownership, et cetera. And the commons in particular, because it's about, the commons is like a model of ownership, in, which is collective ownership, but it's also implies collective governance. You know, you have to negotiate. You have to govern the property together in order to negotiate how we access it, right? Right, to make sure that uh, it's accessible to everyone. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in, so so this can lead into a, a conversation about left governmentality in, in a way, right? It's because that's the sort of, like, what's the, if we, if we sort of like look at neoliberal governmentality, so that the way you govern things influences the mentality in which, um, uh, the mentality of the people who, who interact with that, those institutions, like what's this, what's the solution to that? You know, right. mm-hmm. uh, what, what would you do about that? So, you know, one of the ways in which you do it is you think about what you need to introduce is, you know, instruments of democracy, you know, you need to introduce it in, a, in an iterative way, right? Because, you know, you need to be trained in, in democratic behavior. It's not something that is spontaneous. You need to be trained in that, right? And, yeah. All of our training is like, is anti-democratic. No, that, that's what I mean. That, that whole, um, neoliberal governmentality where you're trained to see other people as a problem, not a, not a potential solution to your problem. That is a training in anti-democracy. So you need to counter that in some sort of way. Uh, you, so, and, and that's the way it's, it's sort of a quite a big thing in the UK, sort of, sort of like, uh, there's a sort of circuit of, of, of new left think tanks around, uh, the sort of Corbyn movement and to sort of to the edge of the Corbyn movement. And like, like that, that sort of, a, that sort of, uh, um, attitude towards we need to change the, uh, model of ownership. We need to change the model of governance. Uh, they call it the, they call it the institutional turn, uh, <laughs> turn towards institutional reform. 
But like that institutional reform is, is like part of a long-term, well, in my head, when I do it, it's part of a long-term strategy of, you know, you're trying to set up the raw materials from which you can push further into a socialist society, into a push democratization further and further into society. I was involved, I wrote a, a report with a friend of mine, Bert, Bert, Bertie Russell, advocating um, public common partnerships as a, as a sort of uh, a sort of reverse engineer of like public-private partnerships, which is these... Right. Do you, do you, have, do you have those yes. in there? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. That's yeah, how we do, that's do. how we get it done here in the USA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, so that's, uh, you know, we, we've got this whole governance model of like, you know, you basically, the, 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 this, this sort of like... Um, it's sort of like a joint governance between like this commons, right? Say for a, for a, for a, for a, an energy company or whatever, um, uh, and then it's jointly governed also with like you know the, the representatives of the public who are like looking out for the public interest, etc. And that forms part of something I would call uh, an in and against the state strategy, <laughs> right? Which is sort of like you know you're using the state to sort of like to, to disarticulate the state. That may sound radical. But the, the shadow chancellor of the Exchequer, John McDonald, uh, you know, he stood up in a speech a year and a half ago saying, we need a cadre, an in and against the state cadre to push a strategy of being, uh, of, of this in and against the, the state strategy, which is, um, which is a remarkable position to be in. <laughs> Kier, what's, uh, what's really interesting to me listening to you talk about this is, is, uh, how, um, much it sort of resonates with, um, a book uh, by Hart and Negri recently called Assembly. And, um, you know, the, 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 this sort of sense, if you will, that it's um, a radically democratic or even semi-horizontalist materialist strategy of thinking about how to advance the cause of the left today. Uh, it doesn't shy away from the need to enter the state, but it does so sort of tentatively in piecemeal fashion, if you will. Um, you used the term left governmentality earlier on, and it reminded me of some pieces that came out around the time of the Greek Ochi referendum by a guy called Stathis Gorgouris, mm-hmm. um, who, who sort of explicitly used that term, actually, uh, which, of course, comes from Foucault. But it's, it's an open question for many as to whether, you know, Foucault was or could be considered a socialist or socialist adjacent thinker. I mean, you've just seen recently this piece in Jacobin saying that he in fact was committed to neoliberalism, something that I would strongly dispute. But towards the end of the birth of biopolitics lectures, Foucault talks a little bit about left governmentality as something that's yet to be invented. Traditionally, um, the left has sort of married itself for its governmentality, either to liberalism you know, had left values, but used liberalism as its primary mode of governmentality mm-hmm. or totalitarianism. In other words, a very sort of strict state model. And so, again, that challenge before us then is to sort of start, start to probe the parameters of what an actual left governmentality might be. And people like Leo Panich, people like Stathis Gorgouris, I think we're very much engaged in this conversation in the face of um, the European Union's assault on Greek democracy and the economy. Um, you know, in 2015, 2016, there were, there were, I think, options. Um, some people were fixated on the idea of Greece leaving the European Union, but then others had this sort of idea of like, well, look, there's no guarantee that if we leave the European Union, we, we do better, right? That's a very speculative 
um, venture. We, we don't know how the global markets will treat us. Uh, we can imagine they will be rather unkind. So instead, you have, and, and, and you refer to this kind of thing in your text when you start to talk about solidarity economies, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the alternative strategy that was put forward was, well, okay, let's stay in the European Union, with, but with no illusions about what we're going to get here. It's going to be horrible, but, but let's sort of use whatever sovereignty we have remaining to us to take the resources of the state and and develop the one thing that the Greek left seems to have really strongly going for it, which is that perhaps more than any other country in Europe, it has a very strong um, s- s- chain of horizontally organized economies. Um, and, and, and by building those out, develop confidence in autonomous, uh, you know, in, in self-management uh, in, in a way that does not require the boss, does not require, um, you know, operating under the sign of profit. Um, mm. For you, I think there's something very similar going on here. And so far as you have, I think, um, uh, you use this term melancholia. Um, you, you sort of describe sometimes a left that gets stuck in... Um, in perhaps what what the, what some right wing commentators might call virtue signaling, um, which which is which is kind of um, a, a tendency on the left, you know, you know, to be right but to not necessarily have a solution or, or or to be able to express a strategy to get forward here. But with these new energies that are that are circulating uh, on the left today, with this new interest in parliamentarism, it seems to you that that. that a dual strategy is, a, is an appropriate way to proceed at this time. Is that correct? Yeah. I'd go further, actually. So I've sort of laid out, like, you know, that there's possibilities, I think, in the UK for an in and against the state strategy. Yeah. But I think there's also possibilities for a sort of dual power. Perhaps we call it, like, um, a parallel to the state yes. strategy, right, where you build up sort of – build up projects which can address – like the problems of social reproduction, you know, at some sort of distance, autonomous from from the state and capital. Like I think those can, I think you could, I, I like, my, I hope we can construct those two projects so that they are, you know, um, so that there's a productive tension between them, so that they can have some sort of relation of sympathy and not relationship of conflict between them, right? Because they seem to be pushing in the same sort of direction and aiming for the same the same sorts of. Uh, sorts of outcomes, right? And uh, it's, it remains to be seen whether that whether that's true or not. Um, so, w- like with the solidarity economies in Greece, I think it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting question of like, I wonder what role they played in that remarkable oxy result. So mm-hmm. you know, there was the referendum about w- whether um, Syriza, the new Syriza government, should you know knuckle under to the to the to the ECB. And you know the ECB basically of course is a run on the banks. They basically turn off the the right. um, ATMs, right? Which yes. is the problem, yes. like which is one of the big problems for for any left government. What happens when you turn off the ATM? Yeah, the and whole purpose of that was to create. Again. Yeah, yeah, capital strike. One, well, one of the whole one of the purposes of that is to cause shock and fear in the population so that they knuckle under. And like that didn't work in Greece, right? Because they voted oxy no, no to the no to the um, the neoliberal reforms. And like, I wonder what. Because one of the way things I think about these, what what, you, what the solidarity economies, etc., which were strong increases, that they act as a sort of shock absorber, right? They they help you to deal with those problems of shock. It's one of the things we're sort of trying to think about and model in the UK now. Like what what will happen when the when 
if if a Corbyn government gets elected. Right. Did I say when? When? That's the optimism. At this stage, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, one of the other things I do, one of the other things I'm, I'm involved in is a, is a collective called the Red Plenty Game Collective who invent like political strategy games. And we, we're doing one, we're doing one called the first hundred days, <laughs> the first hundred, trying to model the first hundred days of a Corbyn government. I, saw, I swear I saw that somewhere. Is Richard Barbrook involved in that? You know, he's, he's our, he's our nemesis. No, he's not. Oh, he is? He's involved in a group. No, he's not. He's not. He's, not. he's a great guy. He, but he, he, he runs a group or he's involved with a group called Class War Games. Uh-huh, <laughs> and they're uh-huh. also involved. It's a bit of a scene in the UK of people doing these sort of strategy games in order. It's like a big, it's like a political education sort of thing uh-huh. of like trying to get people to engage with and strategically think about what the, what the problems are. And that's one of the things we're trying to model is like, you know, well, what, what, what responses will, a Corbyn government um, attract from from capital. You know what? Uh, what are the things that have defeated left governments in in, in the past? Yeah, you know, uh, we're probably out of time to build a robust solidarity economy in the UK. Right, I think mm-hmm. the crisis is coming. You'll have to, you'll have to build but, you know, it as you go. If, probably we will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah, actually, so. you know, with with as much as like half the left loved loves uh, prefigurative movements, ought to work out just fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, do do you play the uh, the Guy de board board game? Uh, no, I, no, no. I, that, that's uh, that's Richard Barbrook's uh, thing. But yeah, but that's that's the that's the very thing. It's like, we've been know, thinking about trying to play it because Charlie and I are both into yeah. gaming. So, but we've yeah. we've never actually made it the, happen. The game of war. So mm-hmm. you can download it off mm-hmm. the off the internet. But yeah, I've not. But that's but that's the, that was the inspiration for Richard Barbrook's group. You know, because mm-hmm. Richard is—he's got a history, a history and situationist thought, okay. uh, and they're—they're they're quite into this, to this, um, to the, the the game of war, and it's—it's it's an interesting um, development. This this shift towards you know, you're trying to get dynamics and you're trying to model them, basically. Yeah, uh, it's sort of an interesting, uh, interesting it's, turn. It's I, very abstract you know, tactics, I, extremely. Yeah, uh, but also, yeah. you know, they're supposed to be fun too. Which mm-hmm. is which is something that yeah, no, totally, uh, yeah. That, yeah, injecting that, joy into these moments is is in some ways very important, yeah. right? Um, Tactical leftist thinking isn't usually uh, associated with lots of fun. That's um, true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so maybe this can be um, a yeah. segue into this idea of so these these sort of things we do outside of the electoral realm, um, yeah. things we do um, on our own. This kind of starts pushing towards, um, you know, ideas of counterculture or even subculture. So we, we've, Charlie and I have talked a lot lately about, um, you know, what role, what role, and, and Fisher obviously does this too, um, you know, what, what role did things like the counterculture, you think of subcultures like, uh, you know, punk or whatever, um, people having communes, things like that. What role does that have in, sort of this dual strategy. Is there something there um, that's useful for us? Is that something that um, can push us further along or is it, is it part of, is it just part of, you know, recuperated spectacular navel gazing or something? Of course Mm -hmm. it's a little of both probably, but you know, what, what, uh, what do you think about that? that Yeah. Well, look, yeah. I mean, uh, um, so that's sort of one of the, the focuses of, of, of the ACFM, podcast mm-hmm. yeah and it's sort it's of such a good show that- it's such a good show i love it i mm-hmm. it's so sweet to listen to <laughs> we enjoy doing it and that's what counts right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. No, but, uh, but yeah but that's one of the things we're trying to think through and, and that's one of the focuses on that, that's what you know the acid communist article uh, the book that mark fisher mm-hmm. is going to write 
you know, it was just this reassessment of the counterculture. Right. Exactly. Of, of, uh, and a rejection of it, of the sort of, this sort of like, uh, the overcoming of his rejection of the counterculture as always leading to neoliberalism, I think, which is what, you know, sort of almost, um, you know, the sort of thing you're supposed to adopt when you grow up in the 1980s and the sort of post-punky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. But, um, so, but when we're looking at subcultures, what we're, what we, we, we sort of, we're sort of not, it's so much, we're look, we're, what the point we're looking at, we're interested at subcultures is the moment when they try and massify, right? Okay. You no. Know, and so when we're looking at like the post-war, the post-war period, how do you understand those subcultures that develop? Uh, so the, 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 one of the ways that Mark Fisher talked about it is as, as popular modernism, right? And so the, the, the paradigmatic subculture of that is mod, right? Because the mods were the modernists. And so, you know, this is a, in some ways, this is the most conformist subculture you've ever had. It's like young working class kids basically, you know, um, experimenting with all of the new sort of com- consumer culture, basically, mm-hmm. and, and working out ways, mm-hmm. yeah, to, ways to live. How to wear uh, their clothes cool. <laughs> yeah, how to wear their clothes cool. The most important thing. <laughs> but yeah, specifically thing brands and stuff think was about. such a big deal, right? Like you had to have the right brand. You had to. Right. Um, you know. Yeah, 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 totally. So, so one of the ways in which you can understand this is this, 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 this right, the, uh, pop writer called Ian Penman, and he, he talked about, he said, mods use style as armor, right? Mm-hmm. He says, like, you, you use style as armor, and it's like, it's armor against the indignities of, of working class life, basically. It's like, look, I, most mods were like clerks, you know, like, you know, sort of young white collar workers, you know, pretty low down in the, in the, in the order. It was something like this, you know, look, you, you know, the, my manager may be able to boss me around at work, but like the clothes I wear now, you're going to be wearing a shit version of in a year. So I'm the one who's in control of the future. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. That's my armor. That's my armor. And like, you know, the confidence, the confidence of the working class is like, that's the fucking important thing. You know what I mean? It's as important as having the right ideas or having uh, consciousness raising is not just about having the right ideas. It's not just about having an idea of like a, a really good idea of where you fit into the world. It's like having the confidence to overcome all of these indignities that we're, 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 we're forced to deal with, you know, and that's part of like, you know, f- uh, the feminist consciousness raising groups. That's part of like the black power movement in the, in the, in the U S in the 1970s. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so that's one way you can understand that is like the whole, that whole cycle of subcultures is a way of like working class people, taking the sort of level of security that it had at that time and experimenting with new ways of living. And that turns in an anti-capitalist direction. It turns into a, like a massified thing and it turns into an anti-capitalist direction. And there's a moment in the, in, in the, in the sort of like early 1970s where it becomes really, really massified. Uh, you know, people talk about the, 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 the Lordstown um, car factory, et cetera. Yeah. That's, that's a going on strike. We're pretty familiar with that. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, and there's a moment where, where you know that it be, that that's the acid communist moment. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, like this, these experiments in new ways of living, they seem to be linked to a critique of capitalism and therefore to a project to to change the world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So mm-hmm. that would be the move from subculture to counterculture. All of these things have a tendency to fall back on themselves, mm-hmm. right? And like turn turn in on themselves and just be ways in which you can just cope with life, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But you know they have a dynamic which can move um beyond capitalism you know unfortunately they're not enough to defeat capitalism right. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, of course you probably need to exercise some economic power right <laughs> economic leverage but like that's that's the way i'd sort of think about that um the 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 my interest in in those sort of like subcultures countercultures etc so uh 
then, it, you know, if that's the way we're looking at it, then it, does it really matter the, uh, the explicit content of, of these sort of countercultural movements? Because it seems that counterculture kind of, you know, arises and then eventually uh, is sort of absorbed back into the culture, you know, in a, mu- mm. in a much more, less uh, transgressive sort of way. Mm. So is it, is it just that this metabolism of, uh, you know, working class armor uh, is, is constantly rising up to sort of present the opportunity for people to, to leap from there into a, a greater struggle? Is that what's important uh, rather than just the, con- the sort of specific uh, uh, content of the counterculture? Yeah. Okay. But, but like, you know, if we think – so there's two things in, in this. One of them is like, you know, if you think about mod, that's it, that is inventing new ways of living. It's experiment with new ways of living. Right. And like that whole counterculture is also about complexifying the working class, right? So it's overcoming the limits of that Fordist – model so the Fordist model gives you a certain level of security but it's very conformist right and like lots of people have a pretty shit fucking part in that but you know so they, they experiment with new ways of living and like you know uh like that's the bit that can lead beyond capitalism you know that's the bit where like, i don't really want to go and live in a commune but like like a, a really large number of americans went and lived on communes in the 1970s i can't remember the number but it's, it's something like shocking something like yeah. 10 million people went off to live live in communes etc you know that that can you know that can play all sorts of of roles but at least you know that is uh, at least one of the ways in which that can go is that that can be linked to a project of transformation uh and it can be the point at which you're experimenting with new ways of living which can then become mass ways of living so forget the count forget the communes just think about second wave feminism you know they had a bloody good go at abolishing a nuclear family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. On ACFM, we had uh, we had an interview with uh, with uh, uh, Mika Navi, right? Uh, Mika Nava, who um, was involved in the, one of the first women's, you know, and they were really had a good go at that, and they weren't having a go at that in a subcultural way. This was they were experimenting with how do we overcome bourgeois conditioning, as they said, uh, as part of a project to change the whole world and expect you know these. The ways that we're the experiments that we're doing now, we are breaking the new territory which everyone else is going to fall into. There's a there's a great article by Ellen Willis who uh, writing about this in the 1980s, early 1980s. He said, you know, we in the in the women's movement, we thought we were uh, we were exploring a new continent, right? But that the, the tide shifted, the tide shifted in a conservative manner. And I looked over and I thought, hey, hang on a minute, I'm not. A, I'm on an archipelago, (laughs) you know, and the tides are coming. I think I'm going to be ending up on an island, basically separated from normal society. And I think a lot of people ended up that way and found it hard to find their way back. You know, it can be a dangerous place to be that, that sort of isolated. So, so what does that tell us? If I could just jump in there, like, so if we're, if we're sort of going to put this concept of the weird left up on the um, dartboard here for a second, like what is it allowing us to do? What are the stakes? You know, it seems it can go wrong, you know, um, weird for weird's sake can be problematic. Right. And and we've seen a number of pieces um, in, in different magazines uh, online recently sort of shouting out this idea of of the weird left, the transgressive left. Um, and obviously, I think it's clear from this conversation that there's something here that we want to retain. It's 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 a place it seems to be uh, the, the space where practices can happen that that allow us to engage in new kinds of imagination to overcome um hackneyed uh, stuck 
ways of living. Um, you know, generate in terms of that generations hypothesis we were discussing earlier on, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's, it speaks to that possibility again of fresh contact. Um, but it seems sometimes that we can fixate on the weirdness and forget that it's left. Yeah. And I'm just curious, like, how do we try to ensure that or, or what, what are some t helpful tips or tricks to sort of keep us accountable to our politics? As we, you know, think about people like Captain Beefheart, whichever, and, and uh, the fall, you discussed these in ACFM episode three, I think we guys kind of drill down on this idea a little bit. I'll put the link to that in the show notes, but, um, yeah, but in that show, we're sort of not interested in, in weird, weird, weirdness for weirdness. Sake. That's what I'm asking. So, but I'm, that's yeah. my question to you is, is like, are there ways of avoiding that? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, so in that show, what, 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 what the way we sort of move through it is a, is to think about the concept of the weird a little bit. Um, uh, and the, the, like, so what, what we're saying is, so, so like, you know, I present pretty normy myself. <laughs> I am an ex-punk, but you know, I sort of, uh, I present pretty normy. And when we're talking about the weird left or when we're talking ACFM, you know, I want to talk about football culture, you know, as in right. soccer culture quite a lot, you know. Sure. Um, but, but, but that's because football culture in the UK, you know, it's interesting because it's got connections to that post-punk moment, right? In particular, there was a big, there was a big explosion of, of football fanzines in the early 1990s, which is that moment of like that, that, you know, that sort of like DIY self-expressing, mm -hmm. that sort of, and, but also a sort of post-punk sensibility enters this sort of like football culture. And it's still very influential, I think. Were, in, weren't some of the glam fans culture. kind of into football and stuff like that? This is going back to like the, the, and I know like the skinhead culture was very into football. So there was like a, there was kind of a countercultural overlap, correct? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, there's been a far right presence at football for, and football hooliganism mm -hmm. for a long time as well. We shouldn't celebrate. But the, the more general point is this is that like, um, you know, uh, everyone's weird, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> everyone's weird. And like the things you think about as the most normy things are full of connections to what you might call weird culture mm -hmm. or experimental culture or, you know, and so that post-punk moment, like, obviously like a lot of my sensibilities are formed because I grew up in a certain period. Right? Sure. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. The same as Mark Fisher's sensibilities, right? But like, you know, the, the, that whole moment was about an interest in experimentation. Some of that just falls into transgression for transgression's sake and it gets boring, right? But it's like, you know, that, that, that thing of like, we want to experiment with something new. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? We expect something, something new, something not this. Um, but can, yeah, uh, when, yeah. can I go ahead? Like, uh, coming back to the book, one of the really kind of interesting parts to me and actually felt very sort of exciting, um, is this idea of reimagining adulthood, right? Because yeah. so much of counterculture has been tied to youth culture and it's like, and it's almost like capitalism was like, okay, about it. We almost made the college experience about this, right? It's like, yeah, sure, mm. in your 20s, you can live with a bunch of people and do whatever and dress crazy and stuff like that. But then you hit like 25 and now it's it's back to the American dream or something, which of course you can't have. Um, <laughs> do you think there's a way that, um, you know, sort of expanding this, and of course, weird for weird's sake makes a lot of sense if you're a teenager, like you're experimenting, yeah. things like that. So. So expanding this kind of counterculture, which has been something that I think in in kind of recent decades has been more about youth culture or connected with youth, mm. youth culture. Do you think there's like a, a way to sort of push that 
uh, counterculture or something into adulthood and maybe help us experiment with new ways to be an adult, which, as you say in the book, is something that we need to address. I mean, in some ways, like the, the 60s and 70s counterculture was one of the mistakes they made probably was to, was to think we need to reinvent adulthood, but around the model of, of youth, mm-hmm. right? And exactly. So the, the model of youth is, is like the time of self-reinvention and the time of freedom, right? It's like a post-war. As a mass exp- experience, it's like a post-war. You know, it's basically it's sort of tied to the social democratic sort of like Keynesian for yeah. this model right. of, okay. of, of yeah, capitalism. Yeah. But like, you know, you 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 grow up, you're a child, you're in your parents' house, you have to do what your parents say. Mm-hmm. When you're an adult, you've got your own family, you've got a, a stable place in the in the economy, you have to, you know, you've got your own responsibilities and that restricts your freedom. And then you've got a period in the middle where you can invent yourself and, you know, reinvent yourself and etc. Like, you know, in some ways that's been closed off, I think, for young people from mechanisms such as debt, right, which imports the, imports the responsibilities of adulthood into, into the period of youth etc but also i just don't think we should collapse all of life down into youth mm-hmm. you know? right. i think we need some model of adulthood which is about taking on the responsibilities so so look the good way the good model of adulthood is you get you gain more and more caring responsibilities as you get older i don't want to lose that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i don't yeah. want to lose that and it's not just caring for you know your family for your children etc we also need to work out ways in which adulthood includes the responsibilities to care for the environment for instance absolutely that's a sort of model of adulthood you want some of that freedom (laughs) you want to retain freedom but it's not the freedom of complete self-reinvention it's the freedom of uh, it's it's freedom uh, but disciplined by your caring responsibilities that might be one way to think about it i think also in a practical sense you think you think the youth don't have many assets you know right like well like what if it was normal for you know, Charlie, Darren, who's here too. Like, what if, what if it was normal for all of us to buy a house together? Charlie's married. I'm not something like that. But if we had enough space, it's not exactly a commune, but you know, um, you can't, uh, you know, that's unheard of pooling your resources outside of your family for something like that. Like that's, that would be crazy. Right. I mean, it was, it was a big thing in, in the, you know, in the 1970s, co-living, mm-hmm. etc. It was a bit. It was a big. It was a big move. The problem is, that, you know, in many parts of the UK, that's just the the, the, the costs involved are just astronomical, and like, you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to get the loans for that. We, right? we can't. Yeah, a, young people can't yeah. do it uh, because yeah, of the yeah. financial system itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a big. The, the, restri- the big restriction on on um, the expansion of like co-ops and other forms of commons is basically you can't get financing. Luckily, my public common partnership report <laughs> tries, tries to address that problem, right? Address that problem by linking, linking com- commons together in, in sort of like chains of, of financing. Perhaps, perhaps that's a bit too um, serious for that moment. <laughs> no, I, no, I think it's, it's totally true because you're right. This, this stuff must be, I mean, that's one of the problems with counterculture, right? There was such a push to be like, uh, politics don't matter or whatever or something like that or, or just sort of, hmm you know, what we're doing is, is not affected by those things. We're going to forge our own way. Um, but as, mm. as we've sort of talked about through this whole thing, these things are related. There's a political element to this. You reforms can help people live their lives in different ways and vice yeah. versa. And above all, yeah. I think for you here, uh, I mean, is it, is it not the case that your book kind of ends with this, I won't say call to arms or whatever, but you know, a call to action perhaps to recognize the, that if, if, in a sense, the problem of our political power right now is is that we need more in our ranks, 
And we need to sort of have this final push where it's not just the Zoomers and the millennials uh, voting for Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn, that we have to get that older class formation, you know, which, as you say, started as a left project, um, bought into these kinds of new energies and potentialities that we have to mm-hmm. deliver. You know, y- you're suggesting that uh, solidarity economies, that 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 these these commons partnerships, as you call them, um, and, and a lot of this is coming. I you know read people like James Meadway and all the rest in the UK right now, and yeah. it seems there's a lot of intellectual energy going towards this in the UK right now. Um, you know, if we want these older people to to to, to feel like this is their project too, I think you're saying. These these types of projects can can help. Um, is that correct? Yeah, but like, let's go back to that. That you know, I was talking earlier about you know, let's think about material interests, but like you can't separate them from what seems viable. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So one of one of the one of the arguments I've been making recently, I've been thinking about is is like why why are older people so attached to to high house prices? Right. In, mm-hmm. in, in many ways, like what is, what are their material interests in the over 65s? It is to make sure that they are cared for on old age. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and like, if you look, if you look at this the state provision of elder care, you are not going to find that very attractive. So there's only people don't have savings generally. You have a, you have perhaps a house. And so the only guarantee you're going to have that you're going to get the care you, you need in old age is to have a high, is to have a, a house with a, with high property values attached to it. So you can, sell that and then spend it on elder care. Right. right? I think that's one of the drivers. Uh, and it's not a nice place to be because well, it's, it's a pretty cruel thing because, you know, for, for the children of the of these boomers, they're going to see their inheritance whittled away the longer mum and dad live, you know. You oh, yeah, they figure that out how to get their inheritance <laughs> into the <laughs> yeah. nursing home industry away from us for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's the, the big growth industry is going to be care, care for the elderly, and it's going to be paid for by these high property. So there's an obvious way in which you can, you can try to address those is you have other ways in which elder care is addressed, which is not, which is, you know, perhaps it's provided by the state, perhaps it's provided by, you know, uh, cooperatives of carers, which have been set up in the UK at the moment on a smaller scale. It but you could, like, but like the perfect opportunity yeah. to, to do a, a public common partnership or these sort mm-hmm. of dual, sort of dual power, yeah, yeah. experiments yeah totally yeah i mean so so what the state would bring that would be you know they would be the ones who could set the environments for which these sorts of experiments could take off become really big do you know what i mean and there are experiments people are trying to put these things into in, into place now in you know in um on a municipal level in, um, in the uk Although I, I think in fairness, we should probably do a little terminological correction. D- dual power in the context of left debates usually is reference to some fairly militarist strategies. Oh, from yeah. 1917. I'm sorry. I, I, <laughs> no, I, just, I, I misspoke. I'm not. I was. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I know I'm, I said it earlier <laughs> on as well. I'm just thinking to myself, God, there's people going to be listening to this who are going to be like jumping down our throats. <clears throat> or, or, but, they're um, gonna, or they're going to be like, this guys are right about dual power. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They may well be. <laughs> some will, yeah, some dual won't. power in it. In its essence, dual power means you set up a counterpower to the state and capital. Yes. Uh, you know, so that could be military or it could just be, you know, you address the problems that people have of, you know, uh, the, the social reproduction, you know. I mean, if you look at, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's the, if you look at the Black Panthers, you know, <laughs> that's what, what uh, they never said an armalite in one hand and a, um, a, a cooking apron in the other one, but like they provided a free breakfast program. Yes. Uh-huh. Right? Uh, same as like, if you That's look at slogan, like, though. you know, 
<laughs> yeah, take that one up, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, if you look at, um, you know, Islamist movements, you know, in, uh, in, in the Middle East, et cetera, you know, they're primarily the provide welfare services is the way in which they provide power. You know, there's, there's different forms of power you can exercise. Yeah. But ex- I, I guess I just mean, form. I guess I just mean it from, you know, uh, again, going back to your socialist governmentality term, you yeah. know, Foucault was constantly sort of saying to the left, I think like, you know, don't, maybe chill with this inverted fetishism of the state, you know, like it's, it's not really this like total power looming over you, like some kind of overlord. Um, it, 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 it's us, you know, like it's, it's nothing more than an expression of governmentality and governmentality has strict conditions of possibility in the way the masses imagine power and its limits, especially in a democracy, of course. I mean, that, that wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't describe a dictatorship as having governmentality per se. That's a different kind of um, way of operating. But um, I mean, obviously, to an extent, you would. But 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 it's not. Its primary function is not governmentality in a dictatorship. I think the, the state is a very different configuration. Um, so so you know, within our moment, uh, it just reminds me um, of this uh, cute little uh, vignette uh, from a documentary called The Examined Life, where. Um, you have um, Michael Hart rowing a boat around yeah, Central Park. And, uh, you know, he's um, recounting a sort of an early biography of his life and how, uh, you know, he went to live, I think, in Nicaragua or somewhere like this for, for a year or two. And, and uh, you know, he was hanging out with the left comrades down there. And he's asked them, you know, like, God, you guys are, you know, he's like, you guys are doing great work down here. Like, how am I going to bring this message back home. And they're just like, oh, it's Michael. It's simple. You know, you grab, you get some rifles and you make a camp in the hills and, <laughs> you know, and, and he's just like, looks at the camera for a minute and goes like, I just didn't think that was applicable for us. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in that sense, you know, I guess that's what I mean by dual power in, in, in that sort of very sort of strict sense of having, um, you know, seeing the state as, as, as strictly the high committee of the bourgeoisie, um, that, yeah. that must be done away with per se. I think, I think we're in a very different, um, mode now where, where, you know, where you're seeing Corbyn in the U S you have DSA, you have all these sorts of movements that are, that are very, you know, I would say even more than flirting with entering the state. They're very seriously trying to see what kind of rear guard strategy, we can set up to to create a, a policy apparatus that will both nurture and and kind of provide a rear guard for the very um, solidarity economies that I think you're describing here, Cure. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Have I just committed yeah. heresy? Well, you might you might need some camps in the hills, still, Nick. <laughs> yeah, okay. Some, I don't know. I mean. We'll go to the hills to take acid and then, yeah, and then we might live there that's at the some re- point that's if the real we take dual, enough. Yeah. That's a real dual power right there. <laughs> I don't know about acid and rifles being a good combination, boys. Uh, uh, anyway, I mean, two um, different lock boxes. It's yeah. fine. There's here a big we've, history here we've, had you, we've had you on the go here for about two hours, mate. Uh, how I'm you, only I, warming up, Nick. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Very good. Any, any last questions there, lads in Columbus? Um, not really, unless we want to talk a little about music, but also I, it's a long time I, in. Yeah, so we, I, I want to talk I, about I music actually, if Kier's got I, time. I actually have one more question um, about counterculture. I don't know uh, if this gets edited out, it's fine, but I, I, I'm, I'm interested, I'm, you know, as, 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 as uh, much as I've been 
uh, a part of and interested in counterculture like my whole life, basically. Mm-hmm. Still feel deeply suspicious about its revolutionary potential. Although I agree with what, what you say, uh, here. That's kind of what we're talking about, right. though, right? Like, right. we wouldn't be having this conversation so my, otherwise. So, my question is, like, how much is class consciousness gonna, going to be an important role in this? I, I, I feel like when, uh, when we, when we talk about counterculture, there's, there, there, there's been almost a sort of bourgeois character to, to a lot of aspects of these countercultural movements. And it, it, it seems like class solidarity is, uh, maybe a, a, a key to, uh, to a counterculture that has more sort of revolutionary potential as far as reshaping daily life or reshaping the way people live their lives. Um, uh, what do you guys think about that? <laughs> well, one, one, one other way you can think about this, right, is um, uh, let's take ourselves back to the old uh, 1970s counterculture. <laughs> like one way to think about that is that there was a generation gap in the, in the left at that point, right? Particularly around things such as the new left, etc. There was a generation gap between between a new left which was emer- which emerged out of like you know experimenting with the possibilities of, of the, the new sort of mass consumer society etc and that took a turn towards anti-capitalism um and then that was in a generational conflict and you know that this this was a sort of like this was the sort of drive which was about you know it wasn't just about experimenting with new ways of living that also was the drive towards like you know what you'd call that um libertarian socialism democratic socialism like the attempts to try to democratize the whole of life do you know what i mean um, and, I, and that was in tension with a left which had grown up in the in the, the post war forties period, and like who was concerned about maintaining the disciplines necessary to defeat capital. Do you know what I mean? Like that was a in some ways in some ways the sort of um, <coughs> we're we're living with the inheritors of that <laughs> with that now. You know, there's that tension is not resolved. That that tension is not resolved, and it's something well, that you have to. Do you think there was an influence of because um, we again we'll talk about punk, I guess, but. You know, punk had that kind of like, it had the, it always had that anarchist side. Uh, and some of the mm. anarchist side was something like crass or something, which is like, you know, yeah. very radical. But then you also had that kind of like anarchist side that like moved a little towards libertarianism. I think of like Johnny Ramone or something. I think of, uh, yeah, yeah. um, uh, Johnny Ramone's what keeps coming to my head. Um, but that was always sort of there too, you know, or you had, um, Whatever there were some of those bands like the Civicious wearing the uh, swastika T-shirt or something, uh, just yeah. to be kind of like, uh, yeah, provocative or something. But that's very like detached from the political meaning of that. So like, I always felt there was that weird libertarian element in punk that that actually I was totally into as a child. But as I mm-hmm. as I've gotten older, it's like that's actually kind of problematic. And I've also seen some, you know, some you know, older punk guys from like, like I think of like Ben Weasel or something. I don't know if that means anything to anyone in like the U S who, who like get old and weird libertarian conservative and they're like ridiculous. So Mm. like, I don't know. I mean, it sounds, it sounds kind of terrible to be like, well, we should call this ideology out of the subculture or something. But I kind of think there's like in, in maybe in a different way of saying that that's, that's kind of true. Maybe that was one of our mistakes we made was not, um, you know, really thinking about the difference between, you know, a, a sort of more radical anarchistic version to how do we make sure we don't turn into libertarians well, or that's something? Kind of, that's kind of what I was going with, going for with the with the question mm-hmm. of class consciousness. But I'm, right, okay, yeah, 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 um, yeah. I mean, so yeah, the whole, I mean, obviously, punk is this ambiguous moment, isn't it? It's just this sort of, of rupture, and then this 
know, whole whole, whole host of stuff is, is wrapped up in it. You know, uh, and, and like in the UK, you know, there, there's various versions of punk you can give, but one of the one of them mm-hmm. is it's it's basically a leftist conspiracy, right? Because <laughs> you mm-hmm. have people like like Malcolm huh. McLaren and yeah. Jamie Reed who did all the graphic design, right? For um, you know, he was involved in like a libertarian socialist group. Mm-hmm. Sophie Richmond, who was like, um, she was sort of the, uh, you know, as a woman at that time, she was the secretary for uh, Malcolm McLaren's thing, um, uh, company. But like, she did a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff, and she was involved in Solidarity, the same group as my dad was involved in. Oh it. wow! Oh, interesting. And they were all sat around, try- and consciously sat around, saying like, "How can we radicalize this? How can we push this in a radical direction?" You really. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is canon. Canon. Well, it's, <laughs> but well, like, um, you know, it's funny because when we talk about this in a leftist way, I'm like, would they really do that? But then I think of something like what the uh, National Front did or something, and they were obviously sitting around thinking, like, how can we, yeah, how can we make the skinhead movement reactionary, like bands like Screwdriver and stuff like that. Like the right was definitely doing stuff like that. So I don't know why it's surprising yeah, yeah. to me that the left would. What? Yeah, but that, like, this is this is like this is uh, this is also pre Sex Pistols, and mm-hmm. you know, Malcolm yeah, McLaren, who was the manager of the Sex Pistols, he was in a group called King Mob. King Mob was sort of aligned to the situation as international, and then they were they were sort of like friends with with, with people. in there was a group in New York called um, Up Against the Wall Motherfuckers, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and they were sort of coming out of this sort of art art left sort of scene. But like a big part of all of that was like this whole provocation thing, which is where you get the the swastikas, etc. And, and there's a problem with that is it opens up all sorts of, you know, uh, experimentation can open up all sorts of stuff, right? <laughs> open yeah. you up to all sorts of stuff. And there's no guarantee, you know, when you experiment with new stuff, there's no guarantee that that's going to move in a, in a direction of like increased solidarity, you know, that depends on, on what else is going on at that time. Well, Kier, thanks so much for joining us, man. We've uh, kept you almost two hours here. Uh, we should be ashamed of ourselves, I think. Uh, you'll have to forgive us. Normally, we, uh, Jim, Charlie, and I, we have a reading group, and, and we sometimes get into these massive uh, three- well, to four-hour sessions. Nick, I told you you should have told Kier it's going to be three to four hours. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> I, would, I didn't want to scare him. I didn't want to scare him. I figured we'd sort of, like, um, lure him in under false pretenses and, and just try to do it that way. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like this is, we'll, we'll read a... Here we'll read like a uh, like a ten page article and then we'll just talk for you know four a, a reading hours. series. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here, thanks so much. It, it was really awesome. It was so great to yeah, talk to yeah, you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I enjoyed that. That was great. Yeah, thank you.